And Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to come to Your Word, our Father, we come as, as beggars who need to be fed. And so we pray that You would feed us with Your Word, that You would nourish us with Your Word, that You would edify us, strengthen us, teach us with Your Word. We know that Your Word never fades, that every word is inspired by You, is God-breathed, and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. And so to that end, Lord, please bless the preaching of Your Word, and may Christ be glorified in this time. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be continuing our study of 1 Samuel today. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, we have Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, If you need one, just raise a hand and Spencer will be happy to get one for you. Of course, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to send one home with you. It would be our pleasure to, to let you take it home with you. Uh, But we will be in the book of 1 Samuel today. Again, that is in the Old Testament. Uh, It follows after the book of Ruth, which follows after the book of Judges. Uh, And of course, these books are all closely related. They're all taking place in the same, uh, roughly the same time frame. Uh, 1 Samuel flows out of Judges, and Ruth took place sometime uh, during the book of Judges. So today we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 9 to 20 of 1 Samuel today. It is the Christian's greatest privilege to pray, if you think about it. The privilege of coming before the God who created the universe, who sustains the universe, who holds everything together moment by moment, the fact that He would not only listen to our prayers, but that He would actually invite us, urge us to present our prayers to Him. How awesome is that? And therefore, it is the Christian's greatest privilege to pray. Imagine what it would be like if you were really good friends with, let's just hypothetically say, the most powerful man in the world. Once upon a time, that might have been the President of the United States. Uh, maybe it would have been a king somewhere. Maybe it would have been a prime minister somewhere of some other country. Who knows who the most powerful person in the world is these days? I certainly don't, but that really doesn't matter. Just imagine that you were really good friends with whoever that might be. Now, you can only begin to imagine how busy that person would have to be. They would be juggling uh, just countless things on their calendars, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to keep juggling so many things to be the most powerful person in the world. Now, they might be able to pencil you in here and there. They they might have time for you, you know, for a phone call or something here and there. Uh, But you have to know that they would rarely, if ever, be able to just drop everything in order to meet with you. But that's not how it is with God. God being who He is, not only can meet with you at any moment's notice, but He loves to. 
In fact, he invites us to do that, to pray to him at any given moment. And it's not only the Christian's greatest privilege, therefore, to pray and and pleasure to pray, but it is also our duty. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. He says, When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now what I want you to notice there is that Jesus presupposes that we are going to be a praying people. He does not say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. So let's be sure that, he, uh, that we see that he presupposes that we as Christians will spend much time in prayer. But if you need to see where prayer is instructed explicitly, uh, or how often we are to pray, consider what Paul says. Uh, Paul answers both of these questions. Are we supposed to pray and how often are we supposed to pray with only three words, three, three words in English. It's actually only two words in the original Greek. In his first epistle to the Thessalonians, to whom he wrote, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. That's in the imperative, right? That is an instruction. It tells us not only that we were supposed to pray, but it tells us when, always. Pray without ceasing. Now, the theme of prayer is found throughout the Scriptures. That's unquestionably true. And it's modeled for us in, in multiple books. Uh, aren't the Psalms, for example, uh, you know, a collection of prayers put to song? Now, you might have guessed by now that prayer is actually the subject that we're going to be talking about today as we continue our study of 1 Samuel. Uh, the passage that we come to today includes one of the most important prayers that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, we've seen that this book has begun in the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel, although we understand that there actually was a king. It was God. They just rebelled and, uh, and despised uh, his sovereign rule over them. And so the result was, it was as if they had no king in Israel, and everyone therefore did what was right in their own eyes. That's exactly what the last verse in the book of Judges tells us. Israel had done the worst thing that any nation or any generation could possibly do. They had forgotten about God. And they had turned their back on him. And the result was chaos that ensued. The result was that Israel was spiritually barren. But then as we started our study of 1 Samuel, we were introduced to a man named Elkanah, who had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Uh, The text told us that God had closed Hannah's womb, but that Peninnah's womb bore many children for Elkanah. Elkanah took his wives to Shiloh to worship at uh, the tabernacle, and while they were there, Peninnah took the opportunity to, as the author of our text told us, uh, to provoke her, that is, to provoke Hannah bitterly to irritate her. And we, we saw that, uh, that, that she was kind of a thorn in the flesh for Hannah. But seeing that Hannah was so upset, so distressed that she refused to eat uh, and and that she was weeping in the presence of her family, of of Elkanah and of Peninnah and her children. Uh, Elkanah tried to console her, but he couldn't entirely console her. Her only consolation, ultimately, was God himself. 
Besides, as we saw, Elkanah wasn't exactly a smooth talker. He was pretty clumsy with his words in trying to console her. But our passage today picks up right where it left off, with Hannah in distress, Elkanah failing at offering her consolation, and Peninnah undoubtedly loving every second of this drama. Uh, But the point of our passage today is this. The point of our passage is that every word of every prayer we make unto God is heard and is handled by God in the way that He knows is best and most wise. Let me say that again. Every word of every prayer that we make unto God is heard by God and is handled by God in the way that He knows is best and most wise. So the drama continues to unfold in the passage that we find ourselves in today as Hannah leaves the meal that she's at with her family to search out the one who actually can offer her true consolation, that being, of course, God himself. So let's start with verses 9 to 11. We read this. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it's interesting to see that while verse 7 very explicitly tells us that Hannah was so upset that she couldn't eat, verse 9 indicates that she actually did end up eating. Uh, Maybe Elkanah's words did offer her some degree of comfort. Uh, I think that when a woman loves a man the way that Hannah loved Elkanah, uh, you know, that, that she's often able to look past the stupid things that their husbands sometimes say when trying to offer a word of comfort. I'm maybe speaking a little bit from experience there. Uh, but let me give you an example of that and not from my own personal life and marriage. Uh, I, think, I think somebody this week actually outdid me uh, in terms of putting his foot in his mouth with his wife. Uh, A former mixed martial artist uh, named uh, Ben Askren posted a picture of himself, his wife, and their lovely children on Twitter this past week. And the post said this. It said, quote, I've seen some guys posting on social media lately about how they're winning because their wife is attractive. While I don't disagree, I think that finding a wife who is a great mother is 500% more important. And so he goes on to say to his wife, thanks for being such a great mom to our kids. Man, is that cringy or what? I I think he he meant well. Uh, I I get what he was trying to say, uh, just like Elkanah meant well. But sometimes words just fail us in the moment, don't they? But it seems that Hannah sees past the fact that Elkanah is not a smooth talker at all, uh, although he's not as bad as Ben Askren, uh, and she sees his heart. She sees his motivation. She understands what he's trying to do, as I'm sure Mrs. Askren did. And the fact that he loves her and wants to console her, has attempted at least to console her, is enough that she's able to eat. 
And when she's done eating, uh, the text tells us that she got up and headed uh, back to the tabernacle, still in a state of great distress, still weeping bitterly. So she seems to have maybe tried to play it cool in front of Elkanah and Peninnah and their children, but she knows that she doesn't have to put on an act for God. And that's the one who can truly give her consolation. That's who she knows, uh, who she, knows she needs to go to. So that's the first thing I want us to see here. She's not putting on an act for him. But her prayer really sets an example for you and me to follow. And for a number of reasons, I think, Probably the most important lesson that we can glean here is that she went to God in the first place. I mean, people, ourselves included, we all know it, were tempted to seek comfort and consolation in other people and other things, aren't we? Uh, one person will seek consolation from friends, uh, another person will seek consolation from a bottle or a needle. Uh, and yet another person seeks consolation from strangers on the internet. Another person, if, if we were in Vegas, we'd say, you know, another person might seek consolation at a blackjack table or a craps table. We, we get it. People seek consolation in things other than God. But Hannah doesn't. She goes straight to God. Hannah turns to the Lord in her moment of needing consolation. She doesn't even go to the priest. She doesn't even turn to Eli, the priest at the door of the tabernacle. No, she goes straight to God. Friends, when you need to be heard, when you need to vent, when you need to feel loved, or when you need to feel vindicated, don't make God the last option that you go to. Don't even make Him your second option. Take your cares. Take your concerns. Take your anxieties to Him first before you go even to your wife or to your husband if you're married. Or before you come to me or one of the other elders here at the church. Certainly before you go to any friends and absolutely before you go to seek consolation from a stranger. Take your concerns. Take your cares and your anxieties before the throne of grace. Turn to God first. Many people in a moment of distress will simply resign themselves to their fate. They'll think, well, you know, I I can't change God's mind, so what's the point of going to Him with my prayers? Or, Or some people will just become angry at God in their moment of distress or affliction, and they'll start thinking to themselves, you know, if God loves me, how could God even allow something like this to happen to me if He truly loves me. Those are the types of responses that create more problems for you. Those are the types of responses that will prevent a person from finding true consolation in God's presence. But the Apostle James gives us a better solution. He says this in James chapter 5, verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. He must pray. And Hannah's example reminds us that the best option in our moment of distress, when we're feeling stressed out, when we have anxiety, when we have concerns, when we're in the midst of a trial or affliction, is to do what Hannah did. Go to God 
in prayer. Now, a second lesson that's important that we can gain from Hannah's example, as we've already seen, is that she knows that she can just be real with God. She doesn't have to put on a front with Him. She doesn't have to pretend with Him. She's weeping bitterly before Him, is what we see in our text. She's not putting on an act for Him. She's not holding anything back from Him. She knows what I hope all of you know as well, She knows that you can't pretend anything with God. You can't fool God. You can't deceive God. You can't convince God that you're stronger than you really are. Just like you can't convince Him that you're somebody other than you really are. He knows who you are. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by just opening your heart up and being real, being authentic, opening everything up before God. Third, she comes to God in recognition of who God is. That is to say, she comes before God in light of who it is she's talking to. She doesn't approach God flippantly. She doesn't come before Him casually. See, there is a right way to approach God, and there are a lot of wrong ways to approach God. But like Hannah, we have to approach him in acknowledgement of who he is. And so she addresses God saying, O Lord of hosts. Now translated more literally, she's addressing him by his covenant name. The name that was revealed by God to Moses at the burning bush. That name being Yahweh. Whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters in your Bible, that's what it means. It means that that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. So more literally translated, she says, O Yahweh of hosts. And of course, the hosts that she's referring to are the hosts of heavenly armies. God has them all at his disposal. And so as she speaks to God, she asks him to Look at the language here. This is great. To to look on her affliction. That's the language she uses. Look on her affliction. Don't miss the significance of that. If If you consider those words very carefully, you'll see that she's actually using the same kind of language that was used of God rescuing Israel from slavery to Egypt when they were in distress. We find those words look and affliction used in conjunction with each other multiple times throughout the story of uh, Israel's deliverance. Uh, In Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 for example we read the Lord said I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. In Exodus 4.31 we read of the response of the people when Moses has gone back and told the Hebrew people that God would deliver them. It says, So the people believed, and when they had, had heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, then they bowed and worshipped. See, we find this language throughout Israel's deliverance. Uh, in looking back, even, on God's deliverance, uh, from slavery to the Egyptians. We read in Deuteronomy 26.7, uh, Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. What a comfort it is to know that God sees your affliction. When you go to God in prayer, you're not telling Him about something that He hasn't already seen. You're not telling Him about something that He doesn't already No, 
but you need to go to him anyway and open yourself up to him. But what this tells us is that Hannah knew the language in those stories, in the stories that she had probably heard countless times from her fathers and uncles and uh, tracing all the way back to her forefathers. She knew the scriptures and she came to God using biblical language, scriptural language, begging him to look on her affliction, to rescue her from her affliction, just as he had rescued Israel from theirs. If he could rescue Israel from their affliction, if he had seen their affliction, wouldn't it be so much easier for God to see and rescue one person from her affliction? Of course it would be. And so as John Woodhouse notes in his commentary, quote, she was asking God to do what God has shown to be his characteristic behavior toward his people, end quote. The fact is, God had a long, long history of remembering his people, of of looking down and seeing the afflictions of his people. And friends, if you are in Christ, you have to know that you're in that group. You are God's people. And He's the same God that He has always been. The God that that we see here in our text here today is the same God that rules over the earth today. Unlike man, God never, ever changes. In fact, not only does God never change, but the fact is, and this is a comfort to those of us who understand this, God not only doesn't change, but He can't change. He is, in fact, unchangeable. And so, when you come to God in distress, in affliction, come as Hannah did, knowing who it is you're approaching and knowing what he has a history of doing to aid his people, to strengthen his people, to rescue his people from their afflictions. The fourth lesson we can glean here is she prays to God in acknowledgement not only of who God is, but of who she is. It's a very humble prayer. She, she refers to herself three times as your maidservant, which is simply the feminine term for servant. She doesn't come before God as somebody who feels entitled with God. She doesn't think that God is the least bit indebted to her as if he owes her anything. No, she doesn't even come to him to complain. She comes with nothing to offer but a humble request. And yet, lesson number five that we can gain from her prayer, she came before him not only humbly, but boldly. Which is simply to say that she didn't ask for less than what her heart really longed for and desired. She wasn't trying to negotiate with God. She simply opens up her heart with God to share the longing of her soul with Him. It was John Bunyan who wrote that, quote, prayer is not asking, it is a longing of the soul. It is daily admission of one's weakness, end quote. And that's exactly the condition that Hannah sees herself in. She's weak, she's helpless, and yet... She knows that God can do something about it. So she comes humbly, but she also comes boldly. She's not only aware of her own inability and insufficiency, but she's also aware of God's all-sufficiency, and so she comes humbly and boldly. Take your burdens to the Lord in prayer, friends.
Whatever your burden might be, whatever your cares, whatever, whatever might be weighing on your soul, don't fall into the pit that James warns us about when he writes, you do not have because you do not ask. How many more blessings, how many more privileges might we even have if we had only thought to stop and humbly present our prayers and requests and concerns and the longings of our soul before God. Don't be too proud to pray. Don't be too proud to trust your deepest desires with God. He's the one who can give you true consolation. Present your prayer requests boldly, but come before him humbly because God is opposed to the proud. God instructs us and he invites us to come to him with our requests and doing so is never, ever, ever toilsome for him. It's, it's never dishonoring to him. It's never disrespectful to him or his time in any way. So as long as your motives are pure, and that's our, our next lesson, uh, the sixth lesson we can glean here, as long as your motives are pure, come to the Lord in prayer. And, and so with that in mind, notice that she doesn't ask God to deal justly with Peninnah. Maybe because there's a bit of selfishness in asking God for mercy for yourself, but justice for someone else. In James's words from uh, chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Make sure your motives are pure, selfless. See, the wonderful thing about this prayer that Hannah offers up here is that these are all important elements of prayer, and they're all modeled in one prayer. Her motives are indeed pure. In this age that she's in of, of absolute godlessness, of, of idolatry, of superstition, and of pagan religions flourishing among the Israelites, one person, Hannah, has a desire for a child who will be consecrated unto God for all of his days. That's her desire. If God would grant her this, this one simple request, simple for him, right? That, that's what we're talking about, simple for him. If God would just grant this one request, her child would not even be her own. Her child would belong to the Lord. One commentator says, quote, the whole climate is one of holy motives, hallowed desires, and humble submission." End quote. That's the way to come to God. And so what we see here is that her desire, the, the desire of her soul, the thing that's causing her so much distress is her desire for a son. And not just any son, but a son who would live his life under the Nazarite vow, apparently, uh, which is described in Numbers uh, chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 5, God instructs, uh, those who take this Nazarite vow in this way. He says, All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. And the reason that we think that 
perhaps that's the vow that, uh, that Hannah's referring to here is because she says, no razor will touch his head. That is characteristic of this Nazarite vow, according to Numbers chapter 6, verse 5. And then in verse 8, uh, the Lord says, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. That is separated, consecrated. But you see, the Nazarite vow typically was just a, a, a temporary vow. Uh, for the most, for most of the men who who took that vow, but Hannah wanted to have a son who would not only take this vow, but who would live under this vow all the days of his life. It, it seems very likely that Hannah had lived through the days of Samson, uh, who had also taken the Nazarite vow. And so this might be kind of an indication uh, that she was desiring to have a son who could do what Samson did. That is, free God's people from their idolatry and turn their hearts back to the Lord. It seems likely that that's what she is praying for. She's not praying selfish, selfishly. She's not, she's not even trying to negotiate with God which is how some people interpret this. She's not trying to negotiate with him, though. She's not saying, you know, God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. That's a selfish way of praying to God. That's, that's how pagans approach their false gods. The one true living God, he doesn't need anything from us. We have absolutely nothing to offer him. So she doesn't want this child for her glory, she wants to have a child who will live for God's glory. And parents, that should be the desire of your heart as well. That your kids would not be your own, but that they would be consecrated unto the Lord for His glory all their days. What we see here is what makes Hannah and her prayer so special. She sees Israel's need for a leader for a man whose life would be consecrated all of his days unto God. And God's answer to her prayer will also be a response to the lack of godly leadership in Israel. Again, Hannah is a picture of Israel. She's an illustration, a word picture of their condition. Just as her womb was physically barren, Israel was spiritually barren. And the answer to both of these things is going to be God's answer to her prayer. Speaking of the lack of godly leadership in Israel at that time, notice that we blew right past Eli, who was sitting uh, by the door at the tabernacle. And uh, that's what Hannah did too. She just blew right by him just like we did. And there's no record of him having ever even acknowledged her presence as she entered. He just sat there, as far as we can tell. And as we'll see before long, that is probably due to the fact that Eli was not a very good spiritual leader. In fact, he was a very poor spiritual leader. He was a terrible one, if we're being honest. And that's going to be made evident when we learn about his sons and the way that he had failed to train them up to have a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. But we shouldn't miss the fact that there is uh, kind of a contrast here. In fact, there is an enormous chasm here between 
Hannah and her devotion and Eli and his apparent lack of devotion. Hannah desires a child who would be consecrated all of his days unto the Lord. Eli has two sons already who were incredibly and desperately wicked and yet held priestly positions in the tabernacle. And so Hannah exemplifies true spiritual maturity and Eli lacks any degree of spiritual maturity. Now remember, as we read a text like this. This text is 3,000 years old, so we want to see it through the eyes of people 3,000 years ago. And we have to see that when we see this contrast, in their eyes, 3,000 years ago, it would have been entirely scandalous for the wife of a countryside polygamist Levite to be a spiritual giant in comparison to the priest who's manning the tabernacle. And his spiritual immaturity is revealed very clearly by his utter lack of compassion and discernment toward Hannah, which we see as we continue in the passage. Let's continue with verses 12 to 18. It says, Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now I think we all get the impression that Hannah's prayer was a silent and very emotionally charged prayer. And so that being the case, her lips moved as she spoke to God, but she was actually praying silently. And Eli, seeing her praying, just makes the assumption that, okay, this is a woman who's in town for worship, and she's obviously had way, way, way too much wine with her lunch. Uh, And so he rebukes her in her ignorance, not knowing anything about what's happening here. It's better to... Abraham Lincoln is the one who's credited... Uh, with the wise advice that it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. And Eli definitely serves as a wonderful illustration of this principle as he removes all doubt that he he at least had some very foolish inclinations. Uh, But to give him the benefit of the doubt, which is obviously something that he didn't do very well, but which we must be better than he was at doing, Uh, To give him the benefit of the doubt, we will see in the next chapter that he's probably kind of calloused. He's probably a bit jaded by some of the things that he's seen take place in Shiloh. But that explains his words, but it doesn't excuse his ignorance. 
because Israel is in bad spiritual shape. And, and in, in that sense, Eli is kind of a picture of Israel's real condition, uh, just in bad, bad spiritual shape. And they don't have a spiritual leader who can tell the difference between a drunk woman and a woman whose heart is breaking before the Lord. And he doesn't even stop to ask her any questions to try and figure out exactly what's going on or which of those two options she might be. Is she a woman who's drunk or is she a woman whose heart is breaking before the Lord? He doesn't ask. He doesn't ask. He just assumes. Hannah defended herself from this rebuke with, with pristine grace. She explains that she had nothing to drink, but that she is simply oppressed in spirit, and that she is therefore pouring out her soul before the Lord. I hope you caught the, the play on words there a little bit. She urges him to, to not classify her as a worthless woman, which is a, a phrase that I get it. Some people are going to have a little bit of trouble with that word, uh, so we, we need to understand where that term comes from. What is a, what is a worthless woman? Well, what's interesting is that the word worthless shows up as an adjective to describe men several times in the book of Judges. Uh, It's an adjective that always is used to describe godless people. People whose wickedness leads to their own destruction and to their own just condemnation before a holy God. And so with that in mind, if you have your Bibles open, look down at chapter 2, verse 12. There we read this. Now the sons of Eli, the same Eli that we're talking about here in the tabernacle. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. But Hannah wants to make it known that the same cannot be said of her. She is not someone who doesn't know the Lord. She does know the Lord. And I pray that the same can be said of you. Unlike Eli's sons, Hannah does know the Lord. And that's why she poured out her soul before him instead of pouring herself a drink or a few too many glasses of drink. But notice how humble she remains even after wrongly being scorned by Eli. She has defended herself truthfully and gracefully all while referring to herself as your handmaiden. Do you think there's maybe an example for us to follow there in the fact that she doesn't get outraged? She doesn't really even react to his ignorance. In fact, she remains gracious. Absolutely, there's a lesson for us. God's people, whether we're talking about 3,000 years ago in Shiloh or today or 3,000 years from now, if the Lord should tarry, should always be characterized by graciousness even when we're insulted, perhaps especially when we are insulted. And Paul talks about that a little bit in Romans chapter 12, where he says that doing that is like heaping ashes on somebody's head, heaping ashes on the person who's angry with you on their head. James says this in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 of his epistle. He says, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God Hannah is a very very gracious and godly woman 
That much is abundantly clear. Eli's response to her graciousness, he, he kind of steps back a little bit and he instead now offers her a benediction, a, a word of prayer on her behalf. He says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. Little does he realize that when that prayer that he just prayed is answered, his position as a spiritual leader in Israel will be over. It'll be given to the child that Hannah is praying for. And so Hannah responds to his benediction and and his prayer in agreement, and suddenly it's like a burden has been lifted from her shoulders. And, And that's what prayer does, you know. I hope you know. It changes things. Look what we see at the end of verse 18. It says, and her face was no longer sad. Think about this for a second. What has changed? Has, has anything about her circumstances changed? No, her womb is still barren, at least for now. So what has changed? And why does she go away being no longer sad? The answer is because she had trusted in the Lord with all of her heart. It wasn't that she had confidence in Eli or Eli's prayer necessarily. It was the fact that A, she herself had personally poured her soul out before the Lord, and B, the mediator, Eli, assigned by God, also prayed for her. And that was a relief for her. Now we should understand that the priests of the temple or of the tabernacle were all foreshadows of a greater high priest. Indeed, our prophet, priest, and king. There was no human king in Israel. The office of prophet had not yet begun, but Eli as a priest foreshadowed. He was a type of God's only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would fill all of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, and who to this day continually intercedes for us before the Father in heaven. Now part of what it means when we say that we pray in Jesus' name is is to say that we come before God on Christ's merit and through His priestly ministry. And when Jesus, our high priest, offers words of comfort and consolation in Scripture, we, like Hannah, should find peace in those words, knowing that His prayers always are answered. Always. When He prays for us, the Father doesn't say no. And the reason for that is because there's only one divine will. There's only one divine will. So the, the son never asks for something that's not in the Father's will. And so, when Jesus prays on our behalf, the Father never says no. And so we have to learn to find peace and to find comfort and contentedness when He assures us of the Father's care for us. And in passages like Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, where He says, Look at the birds of the air. That they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Did he mean that? Should that comfort us? Of course. We must learn to find solace and courage to press on when he assures us that he would lay down his life for his sheep. 
and that not one will slip out of His hand. Not even one. And it's in light of His atoning death and His vicarious and uh, atoning sacrifice that He declares and instructs us, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Notice that when He says that, there's kind of a choice. Nor let it. Nor let it. You've got to learn to preach to your heart. What should you preach to your heart? How about starting with what Jesus just said there? My peace I give to you. Friends, my prayer for you is that you would have the faith that Hannah had when you pray and when you recall the promises of Jesus and that your response would mirror the response that we find in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, where we read, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Hannah's circumstances haven't changed yet. But do you see what has changed? Hannah has. Hannah has. Prayer that is truly offered in faith has a way of changing us way before anything about our circumstances might change. And so she's no longer sad or troubled, and her face is a reflection of that. And this is why Puritan author William Law said that, quote, He who has learned to pray has learned the greatest secret of a holy and happy life, end quote. Have you learned that secret? Have you learned that secret? My prayer is that if you haven't, you would. To neglect prayer, friends, is to deny ourselves of the greatest and the highest fellowship that man can experience. That is the fellowship that we have with God Himself in prayer. And it's to cut ourselves off. If we deny ourselves prayer, it's to cut ourselves off from the greatest source of peace and joy that any man can ever know. Prayer is like an open line between a soldier who has made his way deep into enemy territory uh, and his commanding officer who is safe back in a bunker and yet who is able to send resources and aid and assistance at a moment's notice as soon as the soldier who's gone behind enemy lines calls in with a request for aid. What kind of fool would that soldier be to get way behind enemy lines, to find himself in need of many, many resources and of much help, and yet would neglect to simply pick up his radio and speak? And friends, the resources that a commanding officer can send pale in comparison to what the sovereign God of the universe is capable of supplying when we come to Him in earnest prayer. As the famous hymn, uh, famous hymn goes, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Prayer will change you. Prayer is the means that God has ordained for you to have fellowship in your most desperate moments and in your most comfortable moments. And the reason that prayer will change you is because faith will change you. Trusting God will change you. 
For example, do you, do you believe what Romans 8.28 says? Do you believe that God really is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes? Do you actually believe that promise? If your answer is no, well, then you haven't gone to Him in faith yet. If your answer is yes, however, then you know that God has heard you. And you know that nothing will happen to you that isn't for your greatest and highest good. God, who is wise beyond our ability to even fully define, He always knows what is best for us. He always knows what we need, and He knows the best way to make that happen. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is to become more like Jesus. And you and I, friends, we have no idea what that would take. We have no idea, but God does. God does. Do you believe that God is being truthful when He assures us through Paul's pen that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Do you believe that promise? Then press on, knowing that if God loves you, He is not only with you, but He is for you. And if He's for you, who can stand against you? Now, if that was the only effect of prayer, if it only changed us on an individual level, wouldn't that be good enough? Wouldn't that be a good enough reason for us to take our cares and concerns to the Lord in prayer? Of course it would. But something more happened here in Hannah's case. Not only was she changed, not only was she comforted and consoled in her sadness, but God would respond by answering her prayer. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. So what we see is the next morning, Elkanah, Hannah, and Peninnah and her children rose early and worshipped the Lord together. And I imagine that Hannah's worship was so much sweeter that day than it was the day before. How sweet and how refreshing it must have been that morning, because... This day, she didn't have that burden on her shoulders. She had given it to the Lord. She had cast the burden of her heart on Him, and she had believed that He had heard her. And she believed that He would do what was best and what was right, because that's what real biblical faith always does. It trusts that God is sovereign, and that in His sovereignty, He will do what is best and what is right. Back in verse 11, she had prayed, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. And here in verse 19, we read, And the Lord remembered her. That's actually the same kind of language that we find back in uh, Genesis 8, verse 1, for example, where we read, uh, But God remembered Noah. We should understand that as surely as God remembered Hannah and blessed and rescued her from her barrenness, God would also remember Israel and would bless them and rescue them from their spiritual barrenness. 
Hannah didn't wait until her prayer was answered to regain a sense of peace and joy because she just trusted the Lord and that was enough. Knowing his mercy, knowing his, his grace, his power, his sovereign rule over all things, in addition to the fact that he has asked us to bring our requests before him, should instill a deep sense of hope and joy and contentment within us as well. He will always give us what is best for us. What we do not have is what is not best for us. If God answers a prayer, then that was what was best for us. If he doesn't answer a prayer the way we were hoping he would, it's because it wasn't what was best for us. But either way, what good man, when asked for bread, is going to turn around and give his son nothing but a stone? And God loves you more than any earthly father ever could or would. Hannah commemorates God's blessing, his his grace, his favor upon her by naming her son Samuel, L short for Elohim, another name, another way of addressing God. His name, Samuel, Samuel, means God hears. Friends, may we be a people who know that to be abundantly true of our God. That when we call out to Him, when we cast our cares on Him, when we make our requests and petitions known before Him, God hears. What His people need, God provides. And in fact, has He not already provided for our greatest need in sending the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the life that is necessary to be reconciled with God, a life that is necessary to be at peace with God, and that is a perfect and sinless life. If you have not lived a sinless life, and none of us have, then peace is only found by believing in Jesus, who did live a perfect life, and whose perfect sinlessness is credited to all who will believe in Him. And in exchange, our sin is dealt with by Jesus. Our sin is imputed to Him. His righteousness is imputed or credited to us, and our sin is credited or imputed to Him so that it's dealt with on Calvary's cross, so that God is both just just in the fact that he punishes sin, and yet he is the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. For those who are in Christ, who have peace with God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, every word of every prayer that we make unto God is heard by God and is handled by God in the way that he knows is best, and most wise. God hears. And that changes everything for us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, what a comfort it is to know that you are a God who hears. That our prayers and our petitions don't fall on deaf ears but to know that they fall on the ear of a father who loves us cares for us provides for us 
knows us and knows what we need is the greatest comfort. Oh, Father, please teach us to be a people who are eager to cast our cares and concerns on You as You instruct us to, as You even invite us to. Help us to find contentment with what we have, knowing that what we have is actually what we need and what we don't have The reason we don't have it is because you haven't provided it. And you haven't provided it because at the time we don't need it. So teach us, O Lord, to be content with our portion. To be content with what we have, knowing that we have the greatest treasure in the world. In peace with you through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that this would change everything in our lives. We pray that we would be a people who are content. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are joyful, who know that we can leave our concerns and our requests in your hands and know that you will do what is right and what is best. Teach us, O Lord, to trust you, to trust you and to walk in light of that trust, in light of that faith. In Jesus' name, amen.